Well, hello there, and welcome to the AFA podcast, the official podcast of animationforadults.com. This is episode 95, and welcome back. I know it's been a little while since our last episode. This is our first episode of 2018. Uh, so, Happy New Year, everybody. Happy uh, New Year. And we hope you had a lovely holiday period and you're enjoying this lovely, shiny new year. Uh, um, uh, I'm Chris, and I am joined, as always, by Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hey, everybody. How's it going? It's going good. Happy to be back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and this week, we are going to be joined by a very special guest. We're going to be joined by Northrop Davis. He is a screenwriter. He is a lecturer at the uh, University of um, South Carolina. In the, He actually does a course in manga production which is very awesome and he wrote uh, his first book was called the uh, manga and anime go to hollywood and it's a very good interesting read if you're interested in animation and comics and hollywood system and everything like that you can read the review of it on the website and he's also going to be talking to us about some research he's been doing for a new paper that's going to be coming up in the uh, international journal comic art so that's going to be an interesting lesson but before that, we're going to catch up now with some some of the news that's happened since last time we were able to record. Uh, obviously, quite a lot's gone on because it's been a little while. But then again, news gets a bit slower uh, running up to the end of the year and early January. But I'll tell you what there is. There's a lot of awards talk. That's something that happens. <laughs> so yep. we've we've written a lot about awards. So I can tell you. I'm not bored of awards or anything, no, I can tell you that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, and this is, we're recording this before the uh, Oscar nominations come out. I think that is happening in the coming week. So by the time this comes out, they are probably out, but we're not going to mention them because we don't know what they are. As of this time, but we Mm -hmm. will, the chances are once we know, there will be, we will be talking about them. Mm -hmm. But, there is another academy that has given out their nominations, and that is the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, a.k.a. BAFTA, who nominated their awards, and they have an animation, Best Animated Feature category. BAFTA have nominated three films this year. They nominated Pixar's Coco, Loving Vincent, and My Life is a Courgette, which is what it's called in the UK, so not zucchini. Um, <laughs> uh, which is interesting in that obviously My Life is a Courgette slash Zucchini was nominated for most places last year uh, but I guess it qualified for UK release for this year and no sign of breadwinner is a bit of a surprise but then again mm-hmm. BAFTA also did not nominate um, uh, Song of the Sea or Secret of Kells so perhaps they just don't get Cartoon Saloon particularly for whatever reason. I don't know. Mm. Um, but last year they did give the award to um, Kubo and the Two Strings rather than uh, Zootropolis. So they are they have been known to uh, not go with everyone else. They also gave the Best Animated Feature Award to the Lego movie in that the year that came out and it wasn't even nominated at the academy awards so um they are don't always just 
stick with everyone else's opinions. <laughs> um, so even though Coco is projected to win almost every award, you never know with BAFTA. They're a bit, Mm-mm. they're a bit original. They're on their own. Like <laughs> also independent souls. Also, they nominated a film that has a a animated character in a lead role, and that would be Paddington Two. Uh, that got nominated for best British film and also it got a a best screenplay, I think. And um, Hugh Grant got nominated for best actor. Uh, He's the villain in it and it's apparently excellent. I haven't seen it. I've seen the first film. It was wonderful. (laughs) I have Uh, seen the trailer and I remember seeing Hugh Grant as the projected bad guy. And I've just kind of had to sit there going, huh, this will be interesting. It is Currently, the best-reviewed film of all time on um, Rotten Tomatoes. Huh. And it's not doing very well in America. So, hey, what are you going to do? I, as at that point, even though you can't see me, is this the point where I just kind of shrug and just go, eh, <laughs> I don't know. America, don't sleep on Paddington. Paddington's great. You no, I not- love Paddington. I do. I'm- I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to your country people. You're... Listen, Paddington's great. Help them. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Chris. I can't help them. <laughs> Paddington is great. He loves marmalade. And yeah, he's adorable. Go see Paddington too. <laughs> anyway, outside of the uh, best animated feature, they also have a best British animated short. And the nominations are Have Heart by Will Anderson. Mamoon by Ben Steer and Poles Apart by Paloma Beza and Sir and Lowe. If, if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, I'm very sorry. Um, and the BAFTA Awards will take place on Sunday the 18th of February at the Royal Albert Hall in London. And they will be broadcast on BBC One, not live, because they don't broadcast them live. And they normally cut out the animated awards and the broadcast, to be honest. So uh, maybe don't watch it to see that. Maybe watch it, but don't expect the animated awards to actually make the live broadcast, which always disappoints me. But hey, another awards ceremony that is upcoming is the Canadian Screen Awards, which, as you might guess, are Canada's equivalent of the Oscars. Uh, They have film and TV category. But this year, they have awarded the breadwinner a massive six nominations. And here's the kicker. They don't even have a best animated feature category because I guess there aren't enough Canadian (laughs) animated features in a given year. Because the breadwinner is obviously Cartoon Saloon produced it, but it it is a co-production with a Canadian company, Aircraft Pictures. So mm-hmm. that's why it counts. Um, okay. Um, so what awards did it get? It's been Sorry. nominated for six awards, and they are Best Picture. <laughs> that's a pretty big deal. Whoa, uh, yeah. Although apparently it is not the first time that the Canadian Screen Awards have nominated an animated film. They apparently nominated, I think the international title is triplets of belleville i know it, i know it as belleville rendezvous but it's i guess that was a co-production as well but it's a french animated film that was nominated a few years ago mm-hmm. um okay so it was also nominated for 
uh, editing, original score, original song, sound editing, and best adapted screenplay. Ooh. Those are a lot of big time nominations. Mm-hmm. It would be amazing if it won. Fingers they crossed. Also, they also have best animated short, and the nominations are Man of Old, The Tales of World Light, Fox and the Whale, and Hedgehog's Home. I think Hedgehog's Home was nominated for last year's BAFTAs, maybe? I, I've heard of it before, anyway. Mm-hmm. And they also have t- TV categories, and they have nominations in all sorts of categories, such as Best Direction in Animation, Best Original Music in Animation, and Best Sound, Screenplay, and Performance. And uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, uh, but there's several nominations for Cloud You a Chance of Meatballs, the series, and Hotel Transylvania, the series, and Paw Patrol, which my nephew loves. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can check out the uh, those categories in the post on the website, so that will be in the show notes. Also announced their nominations are the Japan Academy Prizes, which is Japan's big award ceremony of the year, and... Unlike most ceremonies, basically you get an award for getting a nomination. You get a you get a a, ex, a a award for excellence just for being nominated, and then they just have a grand prize winner. So you know when you say, "Oh, being nominated is like a prize in its own." Well, with the Japan Academy Prizes, it actually is. <laughs> it literally <laughs> you get you get a prize, and they have the Animation of the Year awards, and the nominations are. Mary and the Witch's Flower. Yes. Which we will be talking about on this very podcast in an upcoming show. Um, Fireworks, which is a film with a much longer title, but it's reduced to fireworks. <laughs> it's it's called like Fireworks. Do they look the same from below as from the side? Or something? It's literally something like that. It is <laughs> the most ridiculous title. Um, uh, that is... Yes. <laughs> uh, Detective Conan, The Crimson Love Letter, uh, which is obviously just the latest Detective Conan movie. Night is Short, Walk and Girl from Masaki Yuasa. Beautiful. Um, and Napping Princess. which That film is, I want to see. <laughs> which we have also covered on this very podcast and on this website. Uh, mm-hmm. So those are the nominations. Uh, so who knows what's going to win? Because... Uh, um, Obviously, if there's a Studio Ghibli film, that normally wins. Or if there's a um, film from uh, Mamoru Hosoda, that normally wins. But there's neither this year. So is it going to be the, is it Misaki Yuasa's year? Or is it going to be Yonebayashi? Hiromasa Yonebayashi. Yes, that guy <laughs> from uh, Studio Ponok, their first film, which is obviously very Studio Ghibli-esque, but is not actual Studio Ghibli. Yeah, it's just because it's got a lot of people who, uh, you know, for people who are familiar, it's definitely uh, a lot of Ghibli veterans are involved with uh, with Studio Panacula, specifically Mary and the Witch's Flower uh, production, which is phenomenal. But like I said, we're going to save a lot more of an uh, in-detail discussion regarding Mary and the Witch's Flower for a later episode. So stay tuned for that. Mm-hmm. And that ceremony will take place on March the 2nd, the day after my birthday. Oh! Um. Uh- <laughs> yes, March 2nd in Tokyo. Excellent. Also, we learned about an exciting new animation festival that is coming 
to Ireland. And in fact, is coming to the town or city, I believe, of Kilkenny in Ireland, which is the hometown of one cartoon saloon. And in fact, the, the, the festival itself is organised by Cartoon Saloon. It's called Kilkenny Animated, and it will take place in February, so it's not far off. And it is, the tickets are now on sale, and it's going to host the, uh, the hometown premiere of The Breadwinner, coming out in Ireland and in the UK on May the 25th. But you can see, if, if you go to the festival, then you can see the premiere in Kilkenny on February 25th. Yeah, which also includes the uh, the Q and A. So that's mm-hmm. that's you know you'll get to see the movie, but also uh, have a special Q and A uh, panel. I think along with the film, so that's really exciting. And the festival runs three days, and there's a bunch of exhibitions and talks, and uh, there's guests, animation animation people from all over the world in attendance. I saw uh, someone from I think uh, Blue Sky is going to be there. Uh, some people from Disney, um, and there is a Wolf Walkers Walking and Sketching Tour. Uh, mm. Not quite sure what that is, but Wolf Walkers is obviously the upcoming film from from Tom, Tom Moore that we're very excited about. Um, and there's also going to be some stand-up comedy and animation, which is interesting. Uh, I've heard of this before. There's um, there's a guy called um, Howard Reed, and he is a stand-up, but he does this. Um, routine where he does big howard and little howard and he's got like an animated child version of himself that he oh interacts with and he's done it he's done it both as a show for kids and an adult one. Oh, uh, i actually had an interview with him recently um and uh he's he's, he's a british guy um and he's going to be at uh, um at the kilkenny animated festival doing a few sets and uh there's also a Another comedian called Beck Hill. I think she's an Australian comedian. Um, she's also doing stand-up comedy and animation. Uh, mm. As far as I know, she does things with like um, flip charts and stuff. I've seen her. I've seen some videos of hers on online. They were very funny. So you can check out the full lineup by checking out the post. Uh, it runs Friday, February twenty-third to Sunday, February twenty-fifth, twenty eighteen in Kilkenny and you can get your tickets now. <laughs> yeah, go see it, support this festival. It looks really flipping awesome. Mhm. So if you're in Ireland or you can travel to Ireland, check it out. And there is another festival that is going to be taking place in in February as well. But a bit closer to home for you people in America because it's in New York and it is called Animation First and it is the first uh, animation festival dedicated to French animation in the United States. Very good. Yes, running from Friday, February 2nd to Sunday, February 4th. Mm-hmm. It's being organized by the French Institute Alliance Francaise, or FIAF, and there's a bunch of different events taking place there. Some of those will include though, some of the features that are going to be taking place here, uh, you know, are going to be U.S. premieres, uh, short features, uh, regular film features, VR, video games, and, you know, this is for all ages. Uh, I believe 
Michael Dodoktowit, uh, the director of the Red Turtle, uh, is going to be there as a you know the guest of honor, uh, mm-hmm. which is going to be attending a screening and Q and A of the Red Turtle itself. So that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, Terry Gilliam and Tim, um, I'm excuse me if I'm pronouncing this correct, Alive, Tim yeah, Alive. That, that sounds right. <laughs> okay, um, their latest project, the 1884 Yesterday's Future, is going to be taking place there. This is future and also a screening of the film Minuscule Valley of the Lost Ants and mm. along with a Q&A screening of Sortant. I can't, I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing all these. And Sortant de Ecole, I think of, is, is a collection of animated shorts. Originally, Jean Reno, Jean Reno was going to be there, but uh, we did get notification that he's had to cancel because of oh, other no. work. But he is obviously one of the coolest French guys. <laughs> He's the guy. He is Leon from Leon, uh, which I think in America is called the professional, but I just know it as Leon, um, mm-hmm. Luke Besson film. And they're screening the 1973 uh, surreal sci-fi classic Fantastic Planet, which you might be familiar with. I don't know. I've seen it. It's very weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. Weird in a good way. Weird in a not so good way. I wasn't a big fan, but. Uh, I may need to rewatch it. Mm-hmm. And of course, because they're French, uh, there's going to be an adults only presentation called erotic animation. Because um, ah. France. Uh... <laughs> animation, you know? Just... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's there. It's there. Uh, so, yeah. Um, <laughs> if you're going to be in New York uh, around those dates, February 2nd to the 4th, then you might want to check that out. Uh, we are hopefully going to have a representative there, one of our New York team, so we will hopefully be able to bring you a report from that after it happens, so that's exciting. Very good, yes indeed. Okay, so there's also a a story that we've got an update on. There was a rumour a little while ago um, that a certain series was going to be making a comeback. Mm-hmm. And that series would be. It's Anim- time for Animaniacs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, Animaniacs, and it's official. It's going to be returning in 2020. Whoa! And it's going to be coming uh, via Hulu. Is that right? Yes. This bit is is not the best bit of the story for people outside America because. Hulu is only available in America. I'm wondering where it might be elsewhere. Um, yeah, but it's being co-produced by Warner Brothers, Hulu, and um, Amblin Entertainment. So uh, Mr. Steven Spielberg will be a producer on it again. Um, and it seems that they have got back the original voice actors, which was going to be a big question. But they apparently have not asked back any of the writers or the showrunner, which is a little concerning. Is it going to be the same? We'll have to... It's a, at this point, because of the fact that this is only now just like a confirmed rumor, it's, a, it's one of those wait-and-see instances, but I am very happy that they are bringing back the voice cast and considering how much of a history, like, you know, people like Rob Paulson and, you know, uh, a lot of the people who worked on this show, you know, Jess Harnell and uh, Maurice LaMarche, they have a very 
strong connection to this series so that, you know, it's, you know, they're always talking. I remember like I listened to the, um, the talking tunes podcast with Rob Paulson and mm-hmm. there was always almost every single episode that I've heard. There is at least one reference back to the, to these characters that they played. You know, I love Rob Paulson loves to do um, his, you know, the Yakko voice and Pinky and, well, his 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 Twitter name is Yako Pinky, so I exactly. Think... Well, there you go. So it's just like you know this 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 show had a big impact on him, and the fact that he is you know going to be coming back to do you know these characters, I I'd like to imagine even though it's not confirmed, or at least we haven't heard anything about the uh, the writers and um, you know the original writers for this show coming back. I would like to think that because of the people that you know that they do have confirmed bring on, they'll ha- they'll influence. You know, or they will help to influence the um, the writing to help it. You know, basically, not because I wouldn't want it to be if, it, if this is, uh, you know, the, the return of the animes. I wouldn't want it to be this exactly the same as it was because obviously, mm-hmm. you know, when it came out versus now, a lot has changed, and I would want the show to reflect that in terms of it's taking those changes and then you know finding the right adapting that humor to fit you know this current generation is important so i think the people involved at least from what we know i i trust their judgment but we'll we'll, it's again it depends on what kind of writing staff they are going to be bringing on to this and what kind of target audience they're trying to appeal appeal to if it's a brand new audience are they trying to appeal to the people who grew up with this show so it's it's We'll wait and see what uh, further information comes down about this series, but the fact that this is coming back at all is interesting. I'm excited because I'm a fan, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of great deal of uh, laughter, uh, courtesy of this show for my you know, for myself, and I know for a great deal of many others of what they were able to do. But it's well, yeah, again, let's we'll wait and see. But I'm really excited. Well, I have to say the fact that um, like the Ducktales reboot and like Danger Mouse and other things have come back and be you know been great. So I'm slightly optimistic that it'll mm-hmm. it'll be good, especially as the original voice cast involved. Um but yeah, it's not gonna be on till coming back till twenty twenty. But they've ordered two full seasons straight away. Cool. Um, so and also the deal includes that Hulu are getting the streaming rights to um the original Animaniacs the whole lot, plus Tiny Toon Adventures and Pinky in the Brain. Oh. So, Interesting. So there you go. Uh, so probably bad news if you're watching Animaniacs on Netflix, because it's not going to be there much longer if it's still there. I don't know, because it's oh. not available in the UK anyway. <laughs> so. Oh, no. I would have watched Animaniacs, and I can't. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so that's coming back, and all I can say to that is hello, Dus. So, there we go. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. That was good. Mm-hmm. It's time for Animaniacs, and we're saving to the max. So just sit back and relax. You'll laugh, you'll laugh. We're Animaniacs. Come join the Warner Brothers and the Warner Sister Dot. Just for fun, we run around the Warner movie lot. And they lock us in the tower whenever we get caught. But we break loose and they're the loose, and now you know the plot. We're Animaniacs. Dot is cute and young. Okay, is that us for news? There was one other thing we did. I was hoping that we could mention, uh, just kind of as an update. 
um, there was an article that we put up on uh, the website relatively recently. Um, I believe it was just early January um, in regards to our Kickstart This uh, series. Oh, yes, yes. And would you like to continue on from there, Chris, and this uh, particular uh, kick, you know, Kickstarter project that has, that's currently, I believe, still ongoing? Yes, this is a project from the site Craft, uh, which uh, you may or may not be familiar with, but it's a subscription site that is kind of, it's like having access to art books of a whole bunch of like independent projects, including a lot of cartoon saloon stuff and also things like other independent things like um, Ernest and Celestine and things like that, plus some uh, graphic novels and some and some independent games and things like that. Um, and uh, you get, basically, you can look at things like backgrounds and, and production materials and stuff. Um, but they are launching a book, an art book, uh, called How We Crafted, that is features 12 chapters um, from 12 different projects, um, which include uh, not only Song of the Sea, uh, and the breadwinner and uh, Secret of Kells, so basically all of um, Cartoon Saloon films, but also a whole bunch of other projects. A, some of them are animated movies, some of them are graphic novels, uh, some of them are games. And they may not; those ones you may not be as familiar with, but they also the artwork looks exciting. Um, so it's like an art book of twelve different projects. Um, and they've also, they've already met the goal, which is good. Uh, and yeah. they're, they're now in stretch goals. And one of the stretch goals is to include materials from Wolfwalkers, the Cartoon Saloon's next film. Uh, that has not Moore. been released yet, but where I'm very eager to see from the premiere, from the material that they have put out, I am very, very excited to see a art book featuring, uh, art from this movie because the art looks just so 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 good mm -hmm. and you can get not only a you can get a you can either get a digital copy uh it's the cheapest option or you can get the physical copy uh and also every every reward also includes access to digital rewards as well um and so there's also a, a deal where you can get access, you can get a subscription to the craft website as well as the book uh, at a discounted rate. Uh, so there's all sorts of different uh, great rewards. And you are also helping to support the creators because the money is, profits is being split between them. Mm, that's, even, that's so neat. Yes. Um, yeah, so the cheapest thing is like uh, $10 for digital copy and the the book, the physical copy is $35. Um, you will find the link in the show notes uh, if you'd like to help. Well, basically you can guarantee your copy now because it's, it's met the goal. So as long as you get your order in, you can get it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm getting wine, so... Yeah, very good. So, yeah, you might consider me slightly biased, but, hey, it looks <laughs> great, and I like supporting these artists, so... 
Yeah, like looking some of the material that they've already put out is kind of like examples of what the art book's going to consist of, and it's really striking. Mm -hmm. All the different styles and pieces I'm looking at, it's really cool. So yeah, definitely if you can, it's, it's, it's like I said, you're now that the the project has been fully funded, you're guaranteed a copy. So if you would like to help continue continue to support them to help meet their stretch goals and maybe get some Wolfwalkers uh, content in the book, that would be you know it's a good time to jump on that Kickstarter campaign and. Uh, chip in. Indeed. Oh, Loving Vincent is another one of the projects involved. So Yeah, I thought I saw some uh, yeah. artwork from that as well. So very good. Very good. So some rather familiar projects to people who listen to this podcast regularly or read our site. So mm -hmm. it'll be around 176 pages, but I guess it might be longer if they add Wolfwalkers. So yep. there you go. <laughs> and I think that that might just about wrap us up for news. So now we're going to go into our main section and it's time to talk to Northrop Davis. Hi, Northrop. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Welcome to the AFA podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Thank you, both you and Rachel. Uh, <laughs> uh, basically, it'd be, this would be an opportunity for you to introduce yourself to our listeners so they can find out a little bit about your background and, and your work that you've been doing. Thank you. Sure. Uh, my background originally is as a screenwriter uh, in the Hollywood movie industry, and then I got a professor position as an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina School of Visual Art and Design, the media arts area, and I have written a book, Manga and Anime Goes to Hollywood, that's published by Bloomsbury Academic, uh, and my special research area of the field of manga and anime has to do with the relationship, obviously, between manga and anime and Hollywood that goes back very far, you know, all the way back to World War II and the advent of the modern form by Tezuka. And I also teach a manga production course at this university, and it's really exciting. You can go to the website where you see our students' work called wemakemanga.com, and you can go to the articles interview tab and read about the students the ones who are getting into various careers, as well as about my research. And as you said, the newest research is this paper called Peak TV and Anime, Why It Matters. And it's really catching things up to date from the book, which was published at the beginning of 2016, to the current time in terms of the amazing developments that have been happening rapid fire uh, in the anime distribution and localization world in North America. And that, of course, impacts things globally. And um, it's been a very exciting process and a project that was funded by the Hosobunka, I, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly because it's a Japanese uh, foundation, which is financed by partially by a grant from NHK, the Japanese public broadcaster. Oh, wow. And my partner in it was... Mariko Koizumi in the research project, who is a professor at really the top university for manga production in the world, Kyoto Seika University. So we traveled together to Los Angeles in 2016 to interview people who work in the anime industry at Anime Expo in Los Angeles to conduct the research. They include... Christopher McDonald from Anime News Network and uh, people from Crunchyroll as well, as, right? 
Right. And Mariko's research, she did a separate paper in another journal. Hers was focused on some different business topics. And the interview with Dallas Middaw of Crunchyroll was mostly quoted in her paper and had more to do with her research. So mine was focused on the uh, localization and distribution developments for anime in North America and by, by extension worldwide. So I focused more on Chris McDonald and some other people. Cool. Um, yeah, it seems, it really seems to have like over like the past couple of years, it really seems to the whole, the whole distribution of anime as part of the major streaming platform seems to have just exploded. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think your timing <laughs> couldn't have been much better on writing this. It really has. When we got there, we started hearing, or I had heard stories about uh, bidding wars going on for anime, but we really needed to do the research to, to find out what exactly was going on. And it, it escalated from Crunchyroll competing with Funimation. Of course, Funimation is the box media specialist in North America, meaning mm -hmm. home video. And they they specialize in dubs. Uh, where, yeah. And then you have Crunchyroll more simultaneous to the Japanese release of the show using subs. And there are purists that prefer subs because they feel it's more accurate subtitles to the actual, because they can hear the Japanese uh, actors and actresses' voices and the inflection, and they feel it's more pure experience. But it really, really started escalating when um, other players entered in. And at one point, as I will explain in my paper, in, or I explained in my paper in the International Journal of Comic Art coming out in February, that Funimation and Crunchyroll really joined forces for a while to basically make it that they could share customers who would be able to experience dubs as well as subs. And they were perhaps working together, and I'm just speculating, to make their whole of them sort of combined or working in partnership more attractive, perhaps, when other really well-financed players were coming in, mm -hmm. uh, like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. And then you have other factors like major Hollywood investors coming in and uh, investing in Crunchyroll. And then you had Sony Television purchasing Funimation. And it just, as you said, it just goes on and on. The uh, It just keeps escalating because most recently, of course, Netflix stepped in with a purchase of 30 anime projects. So the idea is that the the streamers as for lack of a better word, or the streaming networks want to be able to have ownership so that they can stream the anime forever. And also that keeps them from having to deal with the sort of checkerboard of international rights, which individual licenses for existing anime require that they can only be streamed in certain countries, only for a certain amount of time, and maybe a viewer is halfway through the series. And as we know, these series can get very long and might get frustrated because the license runs out. Oh, mm. tell me about it. <laughs> right. So, so Netflix did some very interesting bets, which was that they not only invested in 
some reboots of existing series like Grappler Baki. But in the case of Baki, it's actually interesting as a side note that they picked the prisoner's arc, which was one of my favorite arcs in Baki, <laughs> where these escaped prisoners escape from all kinds of difficult prisoners all over the world. One is underwater, I believe. And they come and convene in Japan in this big tournament. And that was actually never turned into anime in the Baki anime. So that way, Netflix is financing a legacy series, but new material from the manga that was never made into an anime. Um, and then they're also doing Saint Seiya, which is, of course, a really big one. That's, um, I'm a big fan of that. Are you? Fr- yes, right? I am. And that was from the old days. And at one point when I was in Japan, because I got involved in, I learned a lot initially before I came and worked as a professor here about the rights situation with Japanese properties, because I presented some in, in Hollywood that got into negotiation. And when I was in Tokyo one time pursuing one that is now actually being turned into a movie, the, the interpreter who was hired to interpret into English in the meetings was picked by the interpretation company because he was, he previously had wanted to become a manga cop. So he knew about it, he, and he, he had decided not to. He would be an interpreter for his career, but he knew a lot about it. So when we were done with our meeting at Shueisha, since I paid for him for the half day, I said, well, let's, I paid for you, right? So let's go to a comic store. <laughs> and he took me to look at Japanese manga, and he, I asked him, how, how do you feel it is most, it can be best adapted into Hollywood? And he said, actually, Mr. Davis, the truth is, I think you're going the wrong way wanting to adapt these in as a feature film. I actually think it's best as television because oh, of its serialized yeah. structure. Mm-hmm. And he, he was a huge fan of Saint Seiya, Rachel, which is why I bring that up. And okay. he showed me the Saint Seiya manga. But that made me, that I also said that just now because it kind of relates to what Chris was just saying before we started talking in the actual interview about the possibility of anime being turned into live action television in America and Hollywood. And that certainly, from that interpreter's point of view, made a lot of sense due to the long running structure mm-hmm. of, of, the, of the stories and the fact that they contain so many characters that are very difficult to squeeze into a feature film. Although something like Battle Angel Lita, which is now Battle Angel, that actually has, to me, a lesser number of characters than many of these long-running series, or at least it did initially in mm-hmm. the in the first uh, set. I don't know if y'all have read that, but it's really amazing. Uh, uh, so it's just incredible what's happening. Yeah, it's like never, never would have imagined like growing up as a kid watching anime in like the late 1990s, early 2000s, that it would have become like when the only way you could get a hand, like a hold of anything that wasn't either promoted on television or being sold in like a VHS store, like that it would be this widespread and people, like you said, there are actually bidding wars going on. Right. And then part of that has to do, of course, with the cost of it and the fact that it ranks high in the ratings, as my paper talks about, there was a binge-watching statistic put out by Netflix in which one of the their anime series, I believe, ranked fourth of all their shows. Hmm. And 
that indicated that they could track quite high. So therefore, the fact that perhaps if you're going to give a very rough average, a uh, half hour of, a of an anime show when it's properly financed might be $150,000. And I, I believe that the one episode of Game of Thrones, the final season, might have been $15 million. That's 100 episodes of anime could be purchased for the cost of one super expensive show episode, obviously. Obviously, if, one, if they're tracking that high, or if some are, you could see why it would become of interest. And the fact that there are so there's such a big fan base all across the world for these and that these streamers work globally. It's really an interesting development. I think because Netflix, they're, they're very, uh, no one actually knows how much anything's being watched because they, they, they like keep a, a tight grip over the figures. But um, obviously the fact that they're investing so heavily in anime, it suggests that it does well for them. <laughs> Right. And an interesting development is that there's a piece of technology that is being developed that is supposedly possibly going to be able to crack into Netflix viewership. Oh. And, and Netflix has been resisting it from what I've read. And we will see what happens because one of the articles I read said that there's sort of an idea that perception is reality with them and they don't want any shows that are struggling in ratings that to be known perhaps mm. because then people might go, well, then if it's not popular, why should I give it a try? Yeah. Yeah. That would be, I mean, obviously if people are trying to decide what they want to watch, it should generally, it should be the show itself pulling them in, not the numbers or how many people is watching it. Right. So that's a good philosophy i hope they're able to maintain that despite technology's onslaught because they're doing <laughs> wonderful work the terrific uh, remake of voltron is yes. another example of what netflix is doing which is so amazing which is with anime which is making some bets on some shows that are actually being written not by japanese but by in, in this case americans and but using the the visual aesthetic of course of anime and they put several they they're doing that with several shows mm. uh one is canon busters i believe yeah yeah uh the LeSean thomas's show right right and... LeSean thomas actually visited here a few years ago oh, sweet yeah and, that, uh, that is i know uh one of the uk anime companies is investing in that as well so it's like proper international co-production they've got Netflix, they've got uh, Manga UK, who are a local distributor around here, who are, because of, basically, because of companies like Netflix and Crunchyroll and everything all um, getting in, uh, this company, who've been around like 25 years, uh, is getting into more being involved in producing their own anime so that they can make money from it, and they were a they were involved with In This Corner of the World, which is a wonderful film. Uh, they uh, got involved with the, they got the international rights to that. And they're going to be involved with Cannon Busters. Uh, wonderful. There's some Japanese studios involved, or a Japanese studio involved with that. And uh, LeSean Thomas is the, I think he's the showrunner. And he's 
LeSean Thomas has also done stuff with Crunchyroll, also getting into co-production as well. Um, Children of Aoife, there's a pilot of it, 15-minute pilot on Crunchyroll, but I think they're doing a series as well. Sure, and what we had, what we found in our, the, when our research started on this project and we sat down with Dallas, as I said, of Crunchyroll, and I had heard that there were these American, the, of course, Crunchyroll is really the Rolls-Royce streamer of the anime world in North America, and they had people who were starting to sit on the rights committees over there in Japan. And the rights committees, for any listeners that don't know, are a group of people that usually Japanese anime previously was financed by a group to um, spread out the risk. And so it might be Dentsu or, or, an, uh, or an ad agency, uh, perhaps the publisher, perhaps another, a bank, uh, and then um, other entities, a producer. And, and so they each sort of had a chair on this committee. And previously in the old days, it was, of course, people from the Japanese industry. But in more recent times, these companies are starting to, in exchange, say Netflix or uh, Crunchyroll in exchange for uh, the uh, some profit and some say, going ahead and sitting on the financing group, um, and the, of course the television network in Japan might be another seat in the group, mm-hmm. and and so the fact that they were starting to do that showed that they were beginning to influence what kind of material was getting made, perhaps, and then in other cases it's full full on one one stop shopping. It's not a partnership. Um, it just depends on the situation. But that's I'm saying all that because what you were talking about in the British case, it's right, international co-production. The international partners are definitely becoming part of it. Actually, um, the previously mentioned company, Manga, they actually did have one major co-production like years ago in that they co-produced the original Ghost in the Shell movie. Interesting. And... Um, and I think that's one of the reasons they're still around uh, is because obviously because they they own it they co-own it they've they will have rights to it forever no one ever no one else is going to steal the UK rights to it and basically they've got that and they've got the rights to Akira so they just whatever else comes out those are going to keep selling forever it seems so, right it's so. also. Yes, it's also very interesting because just after I finished the paper and delivered it, of course, uh, right then Disney um, took over Fox if it gets approved by the government. Mm-hmm. And then there's that because Disney uh, is doing that, of course, as we know, to get more production to be able to compete with um, Netflix, etc. And it does make one wonder whether or not they might become interested in the anime scene as well, although I have no idea whether they will or not, but the fact that only a few companies can scale up to that degree and that that's how much material it takes, um, you know, and that currently we have about 500 scripted television shows being produced with maybe 150 pilots being shot a year in, in the, you know, in the live action realm and the the fact is is that it's a form that requires the streaming networks requires a a whole lot of material and so from what 
I've read in it, the Japanese anime industry is booked up for years. It's at capacity. And one of the great things that's happened is that the influx of foreign funds has raised the budgets to a degree. How much that flows back to the anime directors and animators, etc., is not clear. Mm -hmm. As to whether it'll get back to them or whether it'll just be used to fund additional productions uh, remains to be seen. But that's a that's a challenge for the Japanese anime industry because they need to keep bringing up new artists. And mm-hmm. one one uh, book I read recently was saying that the problem, according to one anime executive, is that such a high proportion of anime young people who come into the anime business to try to be an artist or an animator drop out in the first year. Mm-hmm. Really concerned that in in a few years, most of the people left will be like in their 60s. Mm-hmm. And that you've got to have a new group coming in. There are some promising things, but certainly some promising developments in terms of some companies that are really attracting young new talent and really grooming them. But one would hope that this a wonderful windfall of money from the outside that is developed might help that process along. Yeah, sincerely hope so. Right. And um, so that there's still, and from what I've read also, there still remains to be, there still remains in Japan a definite um, affinity for hand animation, animation that is not CG. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this this writer, uh, he was saying that uh, that there's sort of this, because of the registration pins on a camera, that there's this sort of oscillation that goes on in film that digital doesn't have, and that it actually creates kind of a warmth in animation, hmm. which which I thought was a very, very interesting theory as to why it is that there is that. And I'm sure artists could really speak to it in a much more informed degree than I ever could because I'm not an artist uh, to, to explain why that is. But a worry about the Japanese anime industry would be that if the talent, future generations weren't able to make a viable living doing it, that, that potentially they could start to lose that aspect as well. Mm-hmm. Like, like it could start stagnating a, a little bit because it's just there's no new blood. Right. And then Miyazaki is only going to be able to make films for so long mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the hand-drawn material that's not computer-generated. And the computer material can be great too, but you need to have artists who are trained and experienced and come up through the ranks and who are able to make some kind of a living. So it could be that the streaming really helps that hopefully ultimately. I don't know if you're aware about Sunrise, the extremely famous anime studio of, you know, Gundam and Cowboy Bebop, things like that. Oh yeah. They built a dormitory in Tokyo to house uh, young animators. So they're aware of the the, difficulty. Um, Mm -hmm. So, of, of being a young animator and how important it is to, to bring new talent in. That's good. That speaks a lot. That speaks a lot about them. Right. Yes. So. I'm pretty sure that the very first, like completely Japanese 
animated original is the devil man crybaby that's just come out because i think every other anime that's been on there has, like was airing in tv in japan and they got the rights like internationally to it i think that's right but um devil man crybaby is completely netflix only and uh it's an interesting place to start i'll say that um because it's yeah it's uh um I, it's high budget and it's um high profile and it's it's getting a lot of attention i don't i don't know if it's getting any attention outside anime community but i've seen a lot of people talking about it online uh, oh yeah whether it's got beyond that i don't know i have seen there have been some positive reviews published in like just more mainstream publications but um, yeah a lot of people have been calling as from um far that I, as far as i've looked into it at least as you know regarding the reaction this series has garnered it's uh people who are like you said it's not really too many people outside of the anime industry have commented on it but uh people who are very much into watching you know anime on a regular basis have are like no we're already like not even out of the first month of uh 2018 and people are like devil man crybaby is the anime of the year people and it's like, it's really first month and that's where i mean to be fair it's masaki yuasa and that man is both insane and beautiful but it's just like wow that that's the kind of hype that this series has garnered and it's you know the fact that it is only you know like i said we're not allowed to make sure if we double confirm this and make sure this is accurate but if it's only available on netflix that's probably no, good news is. for netflix it, it is definitely a netflix but i'm i'm just the only thing is i'm not sure on is if there has been another there might have been films i think possibly but mm -hmm. not series that have been completely because uh, there's there's an anime Godzilla movie's just gone on Netflix, and oh. I know that that got released in Japanese cinemas first. Uh, it's Polygon Pictures, because uh, a lot lot of the early anime on Netflix was CG, uh, mm -hmm. and Polygon Pictures did a lot of them. There's a series called Arjin Demi Humans. It's actually really good, even though I'm not a big fan of the CG animation, but it's it's a very good thriller. Um, and uh, was uh, Knights of Sidonia was another series, but I think they all aired in, in TV on Japan. And I know uh, Little Witch Academia did. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, Netflix were in the production committee or something, but it, um, it aired in Japan quite a while before it appeared on Netflix because people complained about it. <laughs> Because they wanted to watch it, because I think it was that was by the time that that was happening. I think they had just only released the the the, the animated shorts from Little mm. Witch Academia, mm -hmm. and then I think that's probably what brought them on. And was like, oh, we would like to do an actual and you know series. And then Netflix was like, we'll take it. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's it's really an amazing time for me. I'm interested because I'm not a business person. I'm interested in it from a creative point of view, and yeah. any time that there are opportunities for really good storytellers to be able to tell their stories in the animation form, uh, the more the merrier, I say. And yeah, you're here. Right? So the fact that this is happening and, that, and also that there's a, a tolerance or a um, encouragement of hybridity, it, when, meaning it doesn't always have to be Japanese, fully Japanese creators and that it's, it can also be others. And when my, a girl who's now a, junior at UC Santa Barbara or my daughter when she was a little girl 
she would come home and like to watch Avatar The Last Airbender on television. Oh, I and love that show. She was very open to it and really loved it. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, oh, this has anime style to it, but that it, but it's also a mixture. It had like the ba- the the backgrounds would look like Chinese calligraphy mm-hmm. uh, and, and or Chinese landscape paintings. And uh, it took me a, quite a long time to be able to kind of get over this sort of snobbiness that, oh, it's not pure anime, so therefore <laughs> it's somehow fraudulent or something. Yeah. And, and now I'm like way past that because I learned a lot enough since then about manga to realize that Tessica himself would have probably said if he were alive that when he himself modernized or created the modern form, whatever you want to call it, he was taking influences from Hollywood, which my yeah. book talks all about, and from even from Russian long-form novels and and uh, just some European films and things like that. So since it began in this hybrid form, why can't it continue to be created in some cases taking those influences from many different sources. Although at one point, of course, you depart so far that you're not even related to the form anymore. That's different. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I, I encourage it and um, I think it's great. Yeah, it did well for Avatar The Last Air- Airbender was ex- an extremely successful show. And it's one of, it's to this day, one of my all-time favorite animated television shows ever. Um, and then also those same people who worked on that um, you know, went on to create um, also The Legend of Korra, the sequel series, and then even the um, the current uh, Netflix uh, Voltron Legendary right. Defender show. They're involved in that. And then, so you can definitely see the uh, ongoing things of, like they're kind of that, that style evolving mm-hmm. with all these different shows. And I really like the work that they've been doing. It's been it, it's gotten better and better with each subsequent release. Right. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, and I know many of my female students in the manga class are huge fans of Korra and The Last Airbender as well. And all, all the students I talk to love the Voltron series. <laughs> so it's really, really spectacular what's happening. So where, where it goes now is going to be really very interesting to see. As I mentioned in my paper, and it's not like this is my original research, but it's you know reading and consolidating the material that's out of out there already in this particular case there was the netflix has quite a debt has a bit of debt that they're dealing with and of course the fact is many or most corporations do that again i'm not a business expert but the uh the fact is is that the uh with the Lucasfilm and with the Disney material being pulled away and the Marvel material being pulled away by Disney from Netflix, this is going to make Netflix so that they really have to stand on their own original material Mm -hmm. uh, to a really large degree. And so after the Sense8 and the Baz Luhrmann show, were canceled by Netflix, uh, which were very, very expensive. Sounds like uh, actually wonderful shows, but they, they, Netflix viewed that they were too, too expensive for the number of viewers they were getting. It's, it was interesting that shortly after that, they really upped the ante on how much anime they're going to be funding. Mm-hmm. So it's, it might be just coincidental or it might be that they realized that they could get so much more of it for than they could with these live action shows, uh, you know, with, with the budget, 
in terms of volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going back to the numbers that you were you were telling yeah, us before, as yeah. opposed to like having a certain number of episodes for an anime versus one episode of Game of Thrones. Right. Um, there's also an interesting book that I read that I cite in my paper called TV Outside the Book, Trailblazing in the Digital Television Revolution by Neil Landau. It's published in 2015. And I found an interesting quote from the Writers Guild of America West the Hollywood Screenwriters Union, Charles mm-hmm. Slocum, whose focus is financial and strategic analysis of the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. And what he was saying was that there are other developments, and he put it, it down partially to American television or corporations purchasing European television networks, but that were also making streaming television now profitable much sooner or television in general if it's a properly packaged show under the right conditions profitable much sooner than in the old system which was based of course on syndication which required several seasons of a show until it was enough had been made of episodes that it could be run in repeats successfully and the syndication market was really where the money was made in scripted television, pre-streaming network. But there are other developments, in other words, what, what he was saying, than just streaming that have allowed series to run less episodes and be profitable. He said that they used to call them busted series that were shorter than a syndication number in the old days. And that meant failed, that it lost money, but that the whole dynamic has changed so much now that you could have a limited, an anime that even ran for a limited time that, or a television show on streaming that wouldn't necessarily run forever, but that could still be profitable. And as a result, that just means more and more material theoretically can be put up for, for distribution or funded. Gotcha. It's it's like it's standard for a lot of things to have like ten episodes or something these days, and it used to be right. Everything had to be twenty, twenty two or whatever. Like twenty six, like was like would sometimes be like a standard. At least I always know, and some of like the anime industry that like the twenty six episode is like a or like is like a standard. But in terms of regular, you know, in the U.S. it's just like you know it's a you know more by season where you have a certain number of episodes one season, and then you go to another season with a certain number of ordered episodes and i think certain um depending on i'm not entirely sure which anime japanese animation studios are doing this now but a lot of them seem to be kind of now following a season format i know um my hero academia is doing that format right now which i think has been a lot to the studio's benefit or the 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 show's benefit as opposed to like say something like uh you know during naruto's uh naruto shippuden's run where it was just you know consistently an episode a week but then you have an, basically an entire series worth of content just nothing but filler and then the, basically the entire you know viewership just kind of sort of mentally checks out it's like oh no we've hit filler i hope that's imagine netflix ever doing something like that doing a, right. an episode a week for every week <laughs> you, you, you've both touched on something really interesting that i had not thought of until you brought that up uh, which is the fact that their filler arcs were a major way that anime series in which there are a lot of episodes just coming out like uh, 
because it's it's released for broadcast television they have to be mm. produced in the same way that american broadcast works it's like a very high volume that 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 was essentially forcing the animation team to make filler arcs which were often fights right Mm. fights or just story arcs which basically could begin and end without really changing anything too much of the story sometimes you could have like say the best filler could give you insight of a certain character without really changing too much about them just giving them more like you know uh i wouldn't say character progression because that's not the right term like development isn't meaning you learn more about this character in terms of how they would deal with a certain situation um or just kind of get you know get some good world building. I think the best uh, One Piece filler arcs actually do really great with uh, just adding more layers onto this very um, in-depth world that uh, that is the world of One Piece. But, you know, the worst ones really don't do any, don't do any of those things. And basically they just have a long-winded fight sequence or a plot that really, you know, because of the nature that it's filler can affect the overall story. So they really just like it, this is a thing that happened and we move on. Right. And if you, that, I think it's a great point because the, it's so labor intensive to create an excellent story that has deep character development. Mm-hmm. A, a friend of mine who is in, uh, who is not in the entertainment industry was talking to me about, we were talking about a pair of directors that I won't name that have kind of lost their way in terms of, of quality stories over the years. Mm-hmm. And, I said, it's obvious to me that they're just not spending the time to develop their characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what could potentially happen in a, in a really rapid fire episode situation. If you didn't have some big writing staff or whatever, or it makes sense that the, with these limited series that you can do on streaming, that the quality could come up in terms of the story because you, you could spend more time on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I've heard of shows in which they consciously made the decision to make it a much more of a limited type situation, including a one in Britain that I've enjoyed a lot that is a one of your crime shows, that they, they actually made that decision, including with the lead actor. That, is it Luther? By any chance? Yes, Luther, yes. Yeah, that's, that's three episodes, a series right. or something. Uh, I, right. I thought it finished, but apparently there's a new series coming this year, which I'm excited about. <laughs> right, I just absolutely love the show. Yes, yeah. but and he was inter- interviewed about that—that that he wanted them to do less if it was if it would keep the quality at the high level. It's the same they do with Sherlock. They do three episodes about every <laughs> three years or something. <laughs> really, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. So it's it's all very very interesting. Um, and it sounds like the people I would assume that's at Toei that that does One Piece have handled the the arc situation really really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then others per, perhaps haven't. But it's just creating so much opportunity to be able to do things at a length that's natural. I was involved in a situation where there was discussions between a Japanese network publisher and rights holder and American side of things for a possible adaptation. And the Japanese, part of the Japanese side was saying that they really felt they just wanted this if it happened to run one season. Mm -hmm. And I was, my partner and I were hearing from the other side, the American side at the time, this is pre-streaming, networks that this can't happen the american system is syndication and i was really sad because 
transact the uh, negotiation didn't work out for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that was part of it. Perhaps it wasn't part of it. But now there's that problem doesn't exist in the same way anymore. Mm -mm, not anymore, due to the due to how everything's been changing. Yeah, I, right. I I remember thinking like with Attack on Titan, you know how oh, right. what what a big hit that was, and then <laughs> you can't imagine in the American system as it was. Obviously, it's as we are saying, it's all changing. You can't imagine the American system where they'd have a hit like that, and then they'd go, "No, there's not going to be a new season next year. We're we're just going to wait." And, and it was like four years yeah. between series. And, and then there's, as it happens, series, series three is coming along. And it, was all, it actually was a short series as well. It was only, I think, 11 episodes series two after four years. And uh, there was a lot of questions over whether the audience was still going to be there because it was like this big breakout crossover hit that was on Toonami and everything and, and was really big on streaming. And it was like, but are people going to still be interested? But obviously the manga was still out there and was still a bestseller. So... I mm -hmm. think I think it still hit big when it came out. Yeah, that was something that you can't imagine that they wouldn't just keep going, but they decided to actually keep up the quality rather than just keep banging it out for the sake of it and the ratings. Yeah, I think that was one of the first instances of that when I I think when we were when that show came out and I remember binge watching my friend with my friends um the entire uh first season of uh, Attack on Titan and then the season was over and then you know like you said it was a long you know a long wait for the second season just to make sure that you know the next season had just as consistent enough quality in terms of the way it looked and how the episodes flowed from the different you know plot points from the manga and you know obviously also avoiding a, you know avoiding the, the same you know filler trap as some other you know popular animations you know, can can fall into not it isn't it doesn't happen for all of them but just there's certain ones and i don't know i just i mean like you said there you run that risk of potentially losing your audience if you take a long time to get the the season out but at the same time like i i like the fact that they didn't sacrifice the look and feel of the show just to make sure you know it got out to people and just that way that when people do tune in for or maybe set for uh decide to binge watch you know season one season two or this you know subsequent season three when it does come out the quality isn't going to change for them they aren't going to like go from season one to two and like oh wait the animation's different which can also have a negative impact right right it's, it's all very interesting because our viewing habits have changed mm -hmm. and and one of my students who, if you go to We Make Manga and read on the uh, articles interview tab, you can see that one of my students, Gregory Getz, is now, uh, he's he wrote two, co-wrote two episodes of The Catch for Shonda Rhimes. And he's a young man wow. breaking <laughs> in really well. And Greg was talking, so my students that start to become successful, they will speak to my classes over Skype. And that's very exciting to the students because when they have somebody who's only a couple of years or so older than them, who's already making their way there, that, that, that makes a lot of impact on them. Oh, and, yeah, totally. And, and Greg was saying one thing that was interesting is that when people binge watch, you actually can, you, you actually should write the show differently mm, than, yeah. than you would have in the old days where if it, if it aired once a week, you have to kind of remind them of things. Yeah. The episode it, recap. 
right. They've had a week and they've, they've worked and done all the things that people do during the week and then they come back and wait. Okay. So they're, they're watching the show again, but if they watch them all at once, he felt that you can thread things in a little bit more subtly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of Netflix series, people say that they, they feel like 10 hour movies rather than, and they, they, it really influences the way the stories are told, knowing how people are likely to watch it. Um, but I, Going back to Devilman Crybaby, I, I think that's got like big cliffhangers. Uh, so I don't know if oh, they were, yeah, if they aimed it to um to be binged or not. But I know I know a lot of people did. Uh, yeah. I, you watched that's it in one evening, didn't you? Uh, I couldn't. Yeah. I, I can't. I can't imagine watching that all in one sitting because it's quite intense. Um, Cliff, cliffhangers never hurt though because even if it's something that a lot of people will watch continuously cliffhangers are you know a as we know great storytelling devices they are and, and b if it gets repurposed later to be more spread out uh it's good to have the cliffhangers in there mm-hmm. so in the american market the live action market for instance there are several cases of shows beginning on a non-commercial a network that doesn't have commercials uh like hbo and then being sold into syndication later or sold onto other show channels that will actually have commercials and so then it would help to have had cliffhangers like i think wasn't the sopranos that way i wasn't I'm not sure what what happened on that one, but I think it moved across from a non-commercial network to one that has commercials. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Speaking of speaking of cliffhangers and uh, there's like it's especially with like a show you could like theoretically binge watch. There was um a uh, interesting example from another um uh American made I guess you could say American made uh series which I as far as I recall has a is very very popular in japan as well um it's it, but that's a uh, japanese anime inspired um uh, rooster teeth uh rwby right right my, my yeah, that yeah that's it's it's really like it's, it amazes me how much that's taken off just not just here in the us but also and definitely i think there's uh manga being made based on it and um i've seen episodes that have been uh, dubbed in japanese as well which has been very fun seeing you know kind of it train you know the the humor you know that is kind of like you know it's still have definitely anime inspired but it also kind of have a bit of the um you know you you know american sarcasm uh humor and then just having to see that like cross you know translated between you know the japanese uh language but something that happened in one of the recent seasons i won't say exactly what it is but one of the um this recent season ended on one of the episodes ended on a very major major cliffhanger and the fandom didn't necessarily take it too well because it's like, no, why did you do that? Like, it's that's that's terrible. Why do you torture us? You know that kind of stuff. And I'm I'm just sitting there watching, like, huh, that was a very good cliffhanger. I'm actually really anticipating the next episode. <laughs> very clever, guys. People can have different opinions, and the the thing that's also very interesting about all this is that uh, the. Atlanta has increased production in general in America for television shows and movies to a really phenomenal level. Uh, That's about five hours from us. And the reason I mentioned that is because quite a bit of it is animation, like shows Mm -hmm. like Archer and things like that. And so 
one wonders whether eventually more anime-style shows might be produced in Atlanta. Um, and um, that's a big kind of sea change in America. And that, that has to do with the Georgia tax credits, which are 30% back on the budget uh, from what I've read. And uh, when I was flown recently, I was very lucky, as I mentioned to you all before the show began, I was flown to a Japanese university in November by a wonderful professor, and I would like to thank them for that, to speak about my book, When an Anime Goes to Hollywood. And on the way, on this 14-hour flight on Delta from Atlanta to Tokyo, I was sitting, I happened to be sitting next to a Georgia state legislator. And, and so you're it's 14 hours, so you get in a conversation. And uh, so he said that they really were standing behind what they had done to to get. He said basically they had funded a uh, an industry, and the, for themselves there and their uh, for their for their state there and their studios being built. And so there's there's a lot of potential for people who know the style this anime style but who are perhaps um, not purely japanese uh in the production to be able to create more of these hybrid productions uh mm -hmm. that, that could be funded when you mentioned rooster teeth aren't they in texas or where are they i believe they are in texas yes right and then you have funimation in texas mm -hmm. um, and then you have crunchyroll i think it's in san francisco is that it I believe so, yes. Yeah, and then it's Crunchyroll and Funimation fund, helping fund it. And now Crunchyroll is funding them themselves, aren't they? I think they are. Yeah. Not just on the rights committee. I believe that's true. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll double, double check that, but I believe so. Right, right. And then another complex situation is with Hulu because you have that's owned by three studios, really, but two of the studios are merging. Mm. And um, it'll be kind of interested, interesting to see what they do re regarding anime. And Amazon, it's a bit different because they, until recently in America, they had that anime strike yeah. uh, label. But they, and Amazon, I don't think have got directly involved. They're just acquiring, because they've got a Japanese operation. And I think most of the stuff they sort of acquired for Amazon Japan and sort of got, worldwide rights as as a um as sort of as a bonus i think um that's interesting amazon of course is the ten thousand pound elephant in the room because <laughs> it, if they really engaged in terms of purchasing um even a non-business person like me could you know can see that they could really affect the market a lot but Anime Strike obviously didn't work out very well for them. And I think the reason for that is because it was behind a double paywall, paywall basically, because uh, you, you have to subscribe to Amazon Prime and then you have to pay an extra $5 a month just to get the anime, anime content. And mm. whereas Amazon Prime in the UK or Germany or anywhere else that's available, all the anime content, They've got series like Cabinari as the Iron Fortress, which is a series from the creators of Attack on Titan, the one known as Zombie Train by some people. Uh, Zombie Train. Yeah. And they they had uh, one of the big series of last series, last season was called Land of the Lustrous or something, and that was an Amazon only. Uh, basically, if you're a Prime subscriber in the UK, you could just watch it 
but if you were in America, you had to pay an extra five dollars just to get it. So right, the double paywall that was controversial. Yeah, uh, but but it seems like Amazon will. I can't wait to see what they do. It'll be Ooh. exciting. Um, one thing that uh, if you get a chance to look at the article, uh, one thing that Chris McDonald uh, talks about from Anime News Network is the fact that over the years, uh, per episode, the amount that people are paying per episode has dropped so much. So in the very early years, you might have 20 years ago, he said that a single episode of anime could cost you 30 to $40 for one episode on VHS tape. That then became two episodes from 20 to 50. And then it shrunk down and down and down. And at this point, he said that for streaming, you're looking at the fact that for most part, people are watching about 10 episodes a month, say, on Crunchyroll. Mm -hmm. I mean, average is pop, pop, probably closer to 20. So you're looking at a payment of 50 cents or less per episode. Uh, so, so they need to have many, many more people with subscriptions. But if they do, because they have so many people, it's, it's able to become profitable. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons one article had said when I was doing research that Funimation was so interesting to Sony was because their costs for box that they sold their box sets at or their home video had not dropped as much as Hollywood's DVD or Blu-ray has. Hmm. Because, and I asked one of my students about that in the manga class, and she said, it's because when I, the reason I buy, and I asked her, why do you buy box media versus streaming your anime? And she said, because it's a collector thing. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, right. And that's why they are—they really, not only are they um, uh, sticking to doing box media, but they're also um, the the whole collectors' market. They're basically collectors' special editions and things are are becoming the way most of the companies are going. They're not just putting out a standard box set. They're put they're putting out a collectors' box set with. Uh, much higher price and um, with um, fancy box and all sorts of extras and maybe even a limited print run. And uh, like uh, in the UK, there's a company called Anime Limited who've done very well for the past few years doing uh, ultimate editions of the biggest, biggest shows. And they are um, very expensive, some of them. Uh, and you get a lot of extras in with the boxes obviously they're going they don't have to sell so many because they are selling at a higher price rate and they're really going for the collector's end of the market right and she said that you can then show it to your friends and say um look at my wonderful extras that i have etc etc so it's a it, it's 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 that and uh one other thing that i talk about in my paper is the fact that some people had perceived uh, when I discussed what was happening that I found in my paper to my students, uh, some of my manga students got a little, a couple of them got kind of concerned and said, well, if the Americans or the non-Japanese people start influencing anime because of their financial interest, say sitting on the rights committee um, or 
perhaps funding the show outright, would, isn't that a creative compromise in which anime will lose its kind of specialness that it that it has, you know? Uh, and what Chris McDonald said about that, which was very interesting, was that there have always been those kind of commercial influences within the Japanese anime industry, and not in all cases. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, not with Miyazaki or whatever. Yeah. But but in the case of other companies, you would have the television station would have it say perhaps the network and also the merchandising people would maybe want characters that could be merchandising and then there would be a he mentioned the music idols that their record company or whatever maybe want certain creative input so he said that it's just that it's a situation of a changing cast of characters involved and that if in fact some of the streaming companies perhaps fund an entire anime, it may be that there's actually less creative input because there's just not so many different people putting their ideas in. And to make it all extra confusing, I quoted one person in my endnotes who's in the Japanese industry who said that they actually like the creative input from the business partners that it actually helps them come up with better creative solutions. Hmm. Uh, so, and that he this person said in the earlier in their career, they hated that. And I'm not advocating any um, particular answer on any of this, but it's all very interesting. It is. It's a, there's obviously, you know, there's pros and cons and it's obviously depends on your own personal perspective on where you would fall into, but it's, it's interesting to consider both ideas. Right, right. And when I was in Japan recently in November, I visited at anime companies and um, and publishers and spoke to editors, manga editors, and I was just really excited by the energy that I was getting. And I think people are very aware of the way things have changed and are more outward looking now. But also like international co-productions, I, I think that brings a whole, whole other dimension as well. Um, like there's there was a co-production like a french comic um with studio 4c called mutafukas that's come out or uh, recently uh and there's um there's cannon busters and uh things like that and and even like the red turtle obviously oh gosh yes the red turtle <laughs> which it doesn't feel like anime but you know it's a japanese co-production and it's it's a wonderful film uh <laughs> and i you know, if if we get more original hybrids, even if they don't feel like the anime we're used to, I I think that's uh, as long as we're getting good stories out of it and good 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 films and TV series, I don't really mind what Neither country produce it. Right. And Chris also talked a lot about Moe. Uh, I don't oh, know yeah. if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, yes, I Moe. I think so. Yes, I thought I did, but I wanted to make sure. So <laughs> so and how there was particularly during the recession years, that there was a sort of conscious pandering to uh, a very limited number of fans in Japan Mm -hmm. that would pay high prices so that you could sell a certain number of copies and and be okay financially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, that that actually is something that the streamers, streaming networks don't want. Really? They, they want anime that the rest of the world is going to watch. <laughs> um, that was 
an interesting part of what Chris said that I found pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and although you never know what people are going to watch, but it just meant that certain subgenres perhaps weren't as interesting to the people trying to get it out to their over 100 million customers that they have mm-hmm. um, than, than the local industry. And I think the material for the local people that are fans, super, super fans, will always be made anyway. Oh, yeah. Right. I think like Netflix and companies like that are, they are more interested in, in getting like traditional, what people think of as the more traditional anime genres like sci-fi and action and stuff rather than all these uh, million shows about cute girls drinking tea or whatever, um, which is, you know, there's a lot of old, old school anime fans who got into anime more for stuff like Akira and Ghost in the Shell and Cowboy Bebop and stuff who, yeah. who got a bit fed up with all the um, cute girls drinking tea and want to see more sci-fi stuff. So we're all for it. And if you look at what Netflix producing, like they've got production IG co-production and uh, studio bones is doing, doing something as well. And they are much more in that vein, which is, could only be a good thing as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and part of, part of what uh, that is going on, and uh, again, Chris McDonald talked about it, was the fact that now in outside of Japan, there's a demographic that from childhood to adulthood and further up into adulthood, into middle age, uh, is following uh, manga and anime in the, sort of the same way that, that was happening primarily before in Japan. Uh, and he talks about it. He breaks it down in a very, very shrewd way in which, you know, he talks about younger children who might watch Pokemon and Digimon, but they don't really know that it's from Japan. They just know it's cartoons. Ah, uh, yes. And, and then at one point, he was saying that around 12 or 13 years when they're teenagers, especially around 15, they start to really understand where it's coming from and what it is. And he talked about sort of this new generation of par- of young parents, young to me, who uh, are now watching shows with their children um, mm-hmm. that, that were anime and that they grew up on, you know. So it's really interesting that that's being, that sort of multi-age demographic is, is really being grown in here, outside of Japan, I mean, because the, in Japan it was that cradle-to-grave market. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to get that here. And of course, it's also a lot of people who grew up with anime uh, who are now the current generation of Western animators. Things like basically all the anime influence is coming into like Cartoon Network shows and right at, and things like that. Like the generation um, producing things like Steven Universe and stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, Star versus the Forces of Evil and Miraculous Ladybug and stuff like that. It's all being influenced by anime they watched when they were kids. So right. Exactly. And then a lot, some of that bounces over to Japan, like in the case of Powerpuff Girls. Z. Oh, right. And that was, I went to CalArts and I remember the animators were using, were, several of them were influenced by anime. 
and then they get they went in and they literally this group of them remade the American animation industry for television in that style in many ways. So those were a lot of the shows that my daughter grew up on. You mean those 90s, um, 1990s um, anime-influenced television shows, right? Oh, yeah, like Sailor, Sailor Moon and... Or more, they get the American ones that were influenced by it. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, so... Uh, well, it's very, very exciting. Um, so my next project for research is I just, um, I'm the same journal, International Journal of Comic Art is going to publish probably this summer an interview I did with Sid Mead, who, oh, wow. um, who he, of course, is a top designer, uh, visual futurist in Hollywood who designed the Spinner car and Blade Runner and a lot of Blade Runner's look and worked on other ma- huge Hollywood productions like Tron and things like that. But he was also hired by Sunrise and to design or redesign the main mecha on Turnagundum. And Ooh. he did the same thing on um, Star Blazers. I, I was about to say, did, wasn't he? I seem to remember reading that years ago. <laughs> Right. So I had the opportunity to interview him through his wonderful agent allowed it. And the introduction, who I'd like to thank, was provided by Nobuo Masuda of Sunrise, who also, uh, during the research of this paper that I talked about today, that we talked about today, uh, it let me sit in on a dub session uh, for one of their shows in L.A. and watch the director and the voice actor and talk to them about any changes they needed to make to make it work in our, you know, to make it make sense to our culture. So there's a lot of people who helped me on these projects and I'm very, very grateful to them and I want to thank them. So. Also that's some, another part of the industry that's going to be helped by um, the, the influx of people like Netflix is, is the dub actors because like with Crunchyroll and stuff, they were getting less work because everything was subtitled but um, with Netflix, they want everything, more or less, they want everything dubbed, and they want it dubbed in eight languages, <laughs> at least. <laughs> so um, uh, they, you know, they put the money into, like, um, there's, they're even doing it with, like, some, uh, the new Coyote, Coyote animation series, Viola, Viola Evergarden, um, controversially is being uh, simulcast everywhere apart from America. Um, but it's coming out with the dub as well in English and other languages uh, everywhere. Everywhere apart from America, which makes you kind of think maybe it's a, it's a test thing to see how, if it's worth doing because a lot of anime fans complained about the fact that uh, they hold on to series until they release it in bingeable models. Oh, interesting yeah now i i've heard that the simul dubs are very difficult to do because you have to do them so fast yeah (laughs) right so it's fascinating and sure that'll be more work for the voice actors and and of course that a lot of them tour the cons and there's so many cons in columbia south carolina where i'm located we already have four or five cons oh wow wow. right and uh even one by my are we make our uh our local nashi i'm i'm there faculty advisor it's called nashi khan and they started it and it was at this 
huge university that I'm at. And then it got too big for the building they were in. And now it's in the convention center. Oh um, my goodness. And we have local DC artists. Sanford Green lives here. And so there's a lot of comics going on here. But then you multiply that by all the other cities where they are. And that's a lot of places for the major voice actors to be able to go and speak. And it, it's revenue source. Mm-hmm. We we do have to ask though, uh, basically about since the manga and anime go to Hollywood book come out, um, there have been some major developments in the fact that we've actually got some anime based movies coming coming in the cinemas or on Netflix in at least one case um, with Ghost in the Shell and uh, the. Uh, the Death Note movie. Um, just like to get your your thoughts on how it's developed since since you published the book. Well, part of the, the situation that exists in the Hollywood feature film world is that it takes a very very long time for a major movie to come out, based upon the fact that it costs so much to make these films. And when you deal with something like Battle Angel or uh, Ghost in the Shell, the budget is so high because it's sci-fi mm. and that it's the stakes are even higher. And as a result, a lot of time gets taken deciding whether or not to do this. And maybe there's availability as well with these top talents involved and so the sort of long and short of it is that it's a very long process and that's why those movies only came out when they did and alita had an extremely long gestation period because that that one was very 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 long and so that's just part of the reason and i've seen the alita trailer and it looks really interesting i'm, I'm really excited to see it mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing that one. Yeah, the um the trailer I was initially a bit put off by the whole um the effect that they've gone with her eyes. Initially I found that a bit off putting, but actually I saw it on the cinema screen rather than just on my computer and I actually thought it worked better. And then I was kind That's of interesting. I was kind of on board and I, I've I'm now really interested to see it because I've I haven't read the manga, I have to say, but I did see the old video years and years ago. <laughs> uh, so I know a bit about it. The um, manga is a the manga is a masterpiece, uh-huh. uh, and the um, the themes and characters are just amazing. And uh, when I saw her eyes, I think you're referring to her eyes in the trailer. Uh-huh. I felt immediately that that was being done on purpose uh-huh. because she she is. She's she's discovered in the scrap pile in the story. Just she fell out of the sky, out of this world triparies that this elite world that floats above. Darkito, who becomes her father, rescues her, and and so he has to put her back together. All that's there is the spinal cord, and I think part of her face. And so as a result, I what I got from it was that they were stressing the artificial nature of her. I, I thought it was really pretty amazing what they were doing there. Um, but of course, you know, I don't know what the movie's going to be like, but I also like the fact that they, they didn't go with the Ridley Scott rainy look, you know, that, mm. that city look that we've, that was so great in Blade Runner and 
but that's been done just a million trillion times. And maybe we'll see that in other parts of the movie. We probably will because it is very urban. And of course, you're going to get those rainy days and nights and things. And I'm sure that'll be exciting to watch how they approach it. But I was, I was happy to see the daylight scene mm-hmm. of her on the back of the motorcycle, just looking for things that are breaking against what we always see over and over again. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, the original material is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the way that the uh, the film, at least through the trailers, the way that's trying to capture this world of this manga, it does. I mean, I understand what you're you're referencing the fact that you know, making sure that you know, it's not like that. You know, every single science fiction you know movie that ever you know ever made in terms of you know environment, it definitely seems from the sense I got a, a unique type of uh, science fiction world that we're going into, at least from the way the film's trying to direct itself. Like, okay, this is a science fiction world, but not entirely like one that you've seen in previous movies, which I really like that they took the extra effort to show that. I don't know how much of that is coming from the manga because I have not read it myself, but I do, I am actually very curious to try and see if I can find a copy and read it um, before, uh, before the movie comes out. Yeah. And it's a great father daughter story. And it's a great story about her finding herself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, still remains uh, i think a, a really terrific story and it's going to be it's going to be really really exciting and i'm going to be i'm excited to see what they do with motorball <laughs> um, because i don't know if y'all are aware of motorball and what part it plays in alita but it's an amazing very violent high-speed sport involving the cyborgs and her and oh. she becomes motorball queen and and the fans jack in through the through the um brains of the of the cyborgs and experience what they go through on the track Um, and so she becomes the killing angel so she's got this dark side to her but although overall she's very very positive but i don't know whether they included that in the first movie or not but Mm. i would be surprised if they did not put that in because it's a very very amazing situation to have for it it's a great set piece mm-hmm. um, and through the process of battling she starts to remember who she was okay yeah. she has to do combat to re- to, to get her memories and mm-hmm. uh, again how much they include in that original storyline we shall see but it's definitely well worth reading the original and um you know obviously the talent involved in it is top rate mm-hmm including the producer, of course, and the, and the director. Very good. James Cameron and the uh, producer and Robert Rodriguez, which right. is an interesting combination that I, not one I would have imagined coming at any point. Right. Yeah. So that's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you very, very much for, for joining us this, for this conversation. It's been really enlightening and interesting and, we should have to keep an eye on what what deve- what developments come down the pipe as far as this goes. See, it'll be interesting to see if Disney do get into anime at all. So, yeah, yeah, sure we're getting into a lot of things, and hopefully, a lot of great creative projects will come out of it. And uh, my manga, the it's called The Hole, is the title that I made with my group. One is my former students, and that'll be published this year. So, so I'll let you know what it is. Oh, excellent. Thank yeah, you. It's Scout Comics and uh, great, uh, great talking to you. And the, um, the, uh, 
the first book is available now from Bloomsbury. Uh, uh, we will stick the link to that in the show notes as well. The paper is coming out in February, right? It's coming out in February, the International Journal of Comic Art. You could possibly get it to your library. Um, and uh, and the Bloomsbury book, uh, Manga and Anime Go to Hollywood, is is available on Amazon. It's, uh, it's available uh, both digitally and in print, uh, as well as from Bloomsbury. And I looked at the digital version the other day, and it came out really, really great because the, I got so many great images um, from the manga industries that were licensed from them and even Disney licensed Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and DC with Superman. And these are all very high resolution images. So it looks great on digital and on print. And I'm really proud of the job that, that the team did and my wonderful editor, Katie Galloff and Bloomsbury and the team at Bloomsbury. So it was, I think it's worth reading to learn about how this all began and um, mm. and uh, the whole history of it, which is a lot more extensive than most people know in terms of the interrelationship between manga and anime and Hollywood going in both directions. Yeah, I learned a lot. Um, I would say if you've enjoyed our conversation today, listeners, then you should definitely check out the book. Um, thank you very much again. Um, thank you again. Well, thank you very much for joining us and thanks once again to Northrop Davis uh, and definitely check out the links that will be in the show notes to his book and uh, yeah, and check out the um, the article in the journal when that comes out in February and uh, the, the manga when that comes out as well. Uh, and we will let you know when that comes out. I think we're going to be running a review of it. So I, Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, so... If you want to keep up with everything we're doing, you can keep up with us on animationforadults.com. You can find all our previous episodes on podcast.com, on iTunes, uh, on Stitcher, and on animationforadults.com under the podcast tab. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, AFA blog. You can follow us on Facebook, on Pinterest, on Google+, on Tumblr. Instagram and Instagram. <laughs> uh, you can follow me at Mr. Crystal on Twitter. Where can we find you, Rachel? You can find me. I'm mainly on Twitter at failty ninja. And if you would like to help us out, produce more awesome content. Uh, you can also head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash animation for adults. And, uh, you can also, uh, help us out with our upcoming, new podcast saturday morning cartoon club uh which you can check out the first episode for for free and uh you can also hear that in our most recent episode the coco ad episode after coco the first episode of saturday morning cartoon club where we talked about the classic voltron um when i say classic i mean old uh it's, it's which was a trip let me tell you it's it's a uh, relative whether you consider it classic in other ways um uh yeah so uh you could check out that on as part of the most recent episode uh after coco our coco talk finishes um yeah you can find that on animation for adults dot, i mean patreon.com slash animation for adults uh you can also send us a donation via PayPal, or you can even buy us a virtual coffee using Ko-Fi if you so 
you feel so inclined and it would all be appreciated and help towards the running of the website and producing more awesomeness. Mm-hmm. And if I'm also make one aside and in terms of another supporting um, uh, some, another very important website to support or an organization to support. Um, if you are interested in, if you're an animator and you've made a short film and you are interested in submitting your short film for a festival, there is a very wonderful festival in New York that takes place in New York called Animation Nights New York. Please visit their website. We will leave a link in the show notes. There is a submission uh, form via free, Film Freeway, which is on the um, Animation Nights New York page. So you can look into what the festival is about. And if you'd like to submit your short film, you can go ahead and do that that way. And, you know, and just enjoy a very lovely evening in animated shorts. Um, it is put together by our very own Yvonne, and it is a really wonderful festival. Please continue to support it if you haven't already. Yes, thank you for remembering that. Bit. <laughs> okay, so thank you once again for joining us for another fine episode of the AFA podcast. Uh, we'll be back soon with episode 96. We're approaching 100, Chris. <laughs> <sighs> Can you believe it? The big one. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> echo, echo, echo. Anyway, see you soon. Good night, everybody. Take care.